Hi, and welcome to the Remain Faithful podcast. My name is Hannah, and I'm your host. On today's episode, we will be discussing the concept of a seared conscience, what it is, where this idea comes from in scripture, and how we can remedy the situation. Thank you for tuning in today, and let's get started. Howdy, everybody. Welcome back to the Remain Faithful podcast. Today, oh, today, we're going to be talking about a topic that has really impacted my life. The good that has come out of my knowledge of this idea has been unmeasurable, and it is from this fruit in my own personal life that I speak on this. This conversation is not always easy. I will let you know right from the jump, but it is most certainly one that is edifying. And with that in mind, we press on leaning in every step of the way to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be discussing the idea of a seared conscience. But before we can jump into the scripture that generates this theology, we must fully define what a conscience actually is. So like a good scholar, I have pulled some definitions off of the internet. The first reads that a conscience is an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or the wrongness of one's behavior. The mental image that I conjure when I think about this as an inner feeling or voice is, you know, that really popular idea from like the 80s or 90s when the conscience was depicted as two tiny versions of yourself sitting on both of your shoulders, one as an angel and one as a devil. Right, that kind of interplay where you have an internal monologue or an internal dialogue debating with yourself or debating with your quote-unquote conscience of what is right, what is wrong, it's a voice, it's a feeling, that is one interpretation of the conscience. A second is that a conscience is a cognitive process that elicits emotion and rational associations based on an individual's moral philosophy. So this, unlike a feeling or a voice that you hear or like um, a notion that you have in your gut, it's a thinking pattern. It's a way by which you arrive at a decision about if something is good or if something is bad. The final definition is what a person believes is right and how a person decides what is right. This definition gives the impression that the conscience is not necessarily a process or a voice, but something that is determined based on a belief system, how your beliefs influence what you think about rightness or wrongness. And this is probably where Christians line up the most in terms of definition. The definition I wrote, it says, in summary, our conscience is the mechanism by which we place value judgments on actions as either morally right or wrong. As these three definitions show, the mechanism by which we arrive at a conclusion as something being in or out of line with our quote-unquote conscience can be a variety of things, right? We've seen an inner feeling slash voice, a cognitive process, a system of belief. And so the point that I'm going to make here is that since there is such a large degree of variability in the factors that can influence the conscience, this clearly explains how people can operate on different standards of wrong or right. We've seen here in this brief two minutes that there are three popular ways to interpret what a conscience is and how we arrive at decisions that are quote-unquote in line with our conscience but if we're all using different processes and different ideas this is very easy to see how there is a lot of difference between what people believe and why they believe it Before we jump into the scripture, I'm going to provide you with what is essentially a fifth definition, right? Um, A.W. Tozer, an absolutely fabulous individual who was just on fire for God, wrote that the human conscience is, quote, the secret presence of Christ 
in the world. And so the interpretation of this is that the Holy Spirit is the mechanism of the conscience for believers. Our internal thermometer of right or wrong that instead of mercury uses the word of God as the substance to determine the temperature of a behavior as being either good or bad. This is also works really well with an idea that I found while researching this idea that the conscience can be likened to a sundial. Sundials work pretty well in the sun for telling time and you can get a fairly accurate assessment or you know guess on what the time is. However, if the sundial is not directly in the sun, it doesn't work very well. So whether that's at nighttime or with inclement weather such as cloud cover or rain, or if you put it in the shade, it is rendered useless. So what we're going to be talking about today is the idea that in order for our consciences as believers to work properly for the mechanism of the Holy Spirit to be functioning in the way in which it was designed and the way in which we need it to function as believers, we have to put our consciences right in the light of Jesus Christ and anywhere else that we place them, they're not going to work properly. So with all that in mind, what is a seared conscience? This idea comes to us from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and that scripture reads, Now, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. So this is where this idea comes to us from biblically, and the context in which this is being written was that in chapter 1, verse 3, we learn that Paul was writing to Timothy, who is located in Ephesus. When Paul had left Ephesus, he had left Timothy in charge of dealing with the false teachers in the church, and these false teachers had set up the primary reason for the letter and the reason that it was being written in the first place. We learn in chapter 1, verse 4, that these teachers were promoting empty speculation rather than God's plan, and in verse 6, we see that they were initiating fruitless discussion. So Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to take this issue of false teaching into account and to bring it up with Timothy after he had departed from Ephesus. Other verses that are really important for this conversation from chapter 1 is verse 5, and this says, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, right? These false teachers were straying from this model of instruction that Paul and Timothy were trying to utilize in the church at Ephesus. And we see that Paul brings up the idea of having a good conscience additionally in verses 18 and 19 where he writes, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the good fight, having faith, and a good conscience, right? Therefore, based on the context of this letter and the contents of this text, the meaning of a good conscience can be rendered one that is in agreement with correct and biblically sound doctrine, right? Nobody's going to argue that. Your conscience as a believer, as someone who is led by the Holy Spirit, is going to be quote-unquote good or fruitful if you are utilizing the biblical doctrine and the voice of the spirit and you are listening to the spirit and letting the true light of the word lead the way right that is not um that's not a contentious point so what exactly is a seared conscience one scholar named adam clark described the seared conscience as one that is cauterized by repeated applications of sin and resisting of the holy spirit 
I think the idea of cauterization is the perfect way to describe a seared conscience. And I, I really wish that this was called the cauterized conscience. I think that's a little bit more, you know, snappy, like <laughs> really vibing with the consonants in that. But the idea that searing or that cauterizing is essentially when you take something and you burn it and you burn it badly, right? This is the imagery that is trying to be conjured up in this idea from scholar Clark that the application of sin burns us and we get these burns from resisting the Holy Spirit, right? Another definition from the Fawcett Bible Dictionary says that a seared conscience is a hardened determination to resist every spiritual impression. In more layman's terms, a seared conscience is one that has been burnt by sin to the point where it is no longer sensitive to the corrective voice of the Holy Spirit. And so that is not necessarily something that sounds really pleasant, right? We see in this the contents of first timothy that the idea of a conscience comes up a lot right i just read a bunch of verses that are showing that paul is really leaning in, leaning into this idea with timothy that the conscience out of which he needs to be preaching and needs to be addressing this false teachers has to be laid completely in the bible that it cannot be rooted in any other source or else it will not prove to be fruitful and so we see in chapter 4 Paul brings up this idea that the people in Ephesus are having seared consciences, indicating that they are having a lot, a lot of sin in their life to the point where their conscience is no longer sensitive to the corrective voice of the Holy Spirit. So how does this happen, right? The first way is that repeated applications of sin are implemented in the life of a believer. This is when you willfully live a sinful lifestyle that is antithetical to the doctrines of scripture, right? You know that your conscience is seared when you don't experience guilt for actions that are clearly and explicitly defined as being wrong in the word of God. This is indicative that the Holy Spirit is not able to infiltrate the scar tissue from the burning of that sin and cause remorse. We learn in John chapter 16 verse 8 that the function of the Holy Spirit in our lives, one of the many functions, is to convict us of sinful behavior when it happens. The verse says, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? This is something that is very clearly explained that the Holy Spirit will be doing for us is that he will be coming into our hearts and he will be making little corrective adjustments and helping us to understand our sin. Just to drive this point home, I used to be a ballerina way back in the day. And of course, I did point work. And part of the anatomy of a point shoe is the pretty pink satin ribbons that tie around the ankle. Now, in order to make sure that they wouldn't fray at the ends, we would singe them with a lighter. This is not at all revolutionary to ballet dancers, and this is common in various kinds of disciplines that deal with fabric. But I distinctly remember the charred end of the ribbon that would result after this heat was applied. Since satin is made of polymers that are fundamentally plastic, the application of this heat would make the plastic congeal together and the result would be this hard, sometimes even black in color, burnt piece of ribbon. This is exactly what I envision seared consciences to look like. They're crunchy little ends of our soul that when poked and prodded by the spirit, the effect cannot be felt due to the barrier of that scar tissue that was created by the sin when it happened and was not corrected. 
we see repeated examples of this type of situation in the Old Testament, right? This is not just a first Timothy thing. Jeremiah 2.12 says, you planted them and they have taken root. They have grown and produced fruit. You are ever on their lips, but far from their conscience. So this verse is telling us in Jeremiah that it is absolutely possible to be living for the Lord and still have sins that are hardening your heart and searing your conscience. We see a New Testament example of this from Ephesians chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. And this text reads, They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Wow, that verse bites. But this is essentially showing us that seared consciences make sin appear to be less serious than it actually is. If the Holy Spirit can't get through to you, there is so much danger and darkness lying in wait to ensnare you. This is a very clear biblical idea coming to us from 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 that says, Your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Since we know that this is the activity of the devil and this is the function by which he traps people in sin, we know that if we are not listening to the voice of the Spirit and if we are not resisting sin, the devil is working very, very hard. He's working overtime, guys. He's working overtime to ensnare us and to trap us in sin. The verse from Ephesians shows us very, very clearly that the hardness of their hearts created a callous that allowed for the repeated application of sin in their life because there was no function by which the pain of that sin could register. Okay, so we see this idea that the hardness of the heart can be the reason that we are unable to listen to the voice of the Spirit. We're unable to hear the voice of the Spirit. However, there's another really, really, really important idea that we have to parallel with this. And this is the idea that even if we are able to be in tune with the Spirit and walk in step with the Lord and pay attention to His leanings, our hearts as people are still really fundamentally flawed. We see Jeremiah 17, 9 that says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Another verse comes to us from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. This is very, very famous. And it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all ways, know him and he will make your path straight. When you take these two verses together, you can interpret the scripture to be saying that your own understanding is not reliable for the exact reason that your heart is incredibly deceitful. The conscience is easily influenced by the human rationale and is incredibly easy to be molded and shaped to fit our own agenda and to fit what we view sin to be in our own lives. So if we're not paying attention, if we don't have our eyes wide open and we are not actively working on killing sin in our life and clearing out our conscience day by day, then the result is going to be us veering off of the path, but thinking we're still going in the right direction because our hearts are deceitful and you've got to keep them on a leash. That is the message that I'm trying to send right here is you have got to put your heart on a leash and walk it in close range.
We have to listen to scripture when it says that our own understanding is not reliable, that our heart is more deceitful than anything else. Because if we don't have this view of our heart, and if we don't have the very clear idea that our conscience can be influenced by things other than the Lord, we will veer off the path while thinking that we are staying on the righteous road, when in reality, the influence that has sent us off in the distance is not God whatsoever, but it is actually the world and the sinful practice that surrounds us. Okay, so we have this idea that the conscience can be seared by sin in our lives, and that if this is the state of our conscience, the Holy Spirit can't get through to us, right? That's everything that I've said so far in a nutshell. And that begs the question, what do we do? do right and i'll tell you but i'll tell you in story form hit it maestro just kidding so i have naturally curly hair right and while i'm really fond of it now i haven't always loved it right this is the story of i think everybody who has curly hair ever for years i wouldn't wear it natural i would use damaging hair products blow dry it straight and curl it with an iron just about every day now naturally curly hair is very sensitive it's really sassy and it has a lot of personality and one of the ways in which it has this personality is that it does not take well to repeated applications of heat damage right and so needless to say my hair was in bad shape it was so dry and brittle it would genuinely just break off like in the middle of the hair strand and it legit felt like it was just gonna fall out of my head when i would try to wear it naturally while it was in this just destroyed state there were pieces that genuinely genuinely would not curl. They would just be straight little boards on top of my head. They looked like crunchy little french fries. And no matter how much water, no matter how much curl cream, no matter how much scrunching I did, they would not curl. And that was just how damaged they were. And that was the visible evidence of how badly my hair was damaged. And so I decided this past January that I was done, D-O-N-E, done fixing my hair with a heat iron and a blow dryer. I made this decision because I recognized that the only way my hair would heal and grow and regain its shine was to just let it be natural 24-7, and that's what I've done, right? It's been difficult, needless to say, because curly hair is not as socially quote-unquote acceptable as curled hair, right? There's a beauty standard in society that I don't think anyone wants to contest because it definitely exists, but me doing this has created in my hair a lot of health and a lot of growth and a lot of strength. And so it was absolutely 100% the right decision for me to do this. And I say all of this because if you have a seared conscience, the solution is to not keep fixing your hair, quote unquote, and thinking that the situation will get better if you just take some collagen or some vitamins or anything like that. No, sis, you've got to stop heat fixing your hair. And in the same way, you've got to stop resisting the Holy Spirit and allowing sinful practice to permeate your life. You just have to. It is really, really hard. I am not going to sit here and pretend like I don't know how difficult it is to unchain yourself from certain burdens and to remove yourself from certain practices in your life because I do. I know exactly how difficult that is. But if you want a flourishing relationship with the Holy Spirit, if you want to be able to hear the voice of God, if you want to be able to walk in step with Jesus and get in line with what he has for your life, you have to cut out the sin. 
even if your conscience is not bothering you about it, even if it's something that you don't see a problem with, even if it's something that is not quote unquote bad in your eyes or in the eyes of your friend group, if it is against the Bible, it is something that you need to remove from your daily life. So what do we do? We're in a situation, we're recognizing in this moment that we have a seared conscience. What do we do? The first thing is you need to submit to the Lord. This comes to us from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and it reads, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. If you are in a position where you are recognizing that your conscience might not be functioning properly, that it might not be a thermometer that is reading the correct temperature of the behaviors in your life, the first thing is you have to submit to the Lord and you have to let him search your heart and reveal to you the areas in which the seared conscience is having an effect. The second thing that we need to do is repent. James chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 say, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now that verse is a biter, but there are so many good things in here, right? The idea that if we resist the devil, the devil will flee from us, right? And the idea that if we draw near to God, he will come close to us. So the second thing we're going to do if we're in a situation of seared conscience is repent, we're going to cleanse our hands, and we're going to draw near to God on the understanding that God will draw near to us as well. The third thing that we're going to do in tandem to what we just talked about from the verse in James is we're going to draw near in prayer and study, right? Just like the verse just said, if you draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to you. So if we're in a situation where we're not fully aware if something is sinful, maybe we're living a lifestyle that we've been living for a long time. Maybe it's common practice. Maybe it's something that we don't even recognize as being negative. The way in which we're going to combat this is go straight to the word of God and examine what the Bible says about certain behaviors. By studying exactly what God's word says about sin in our life, the unavoidable implication of that is that we will also discover God's mercy for us and his grace, right? Those two things go hand in hand. That is the entire story of the Bible. That is the story of redemption. It is the best news on earth. And if we study the Bible, we will be able to see how the Lord forgives us and pulls us out of sin and restores us in every way possible. And the final thing we're going to do, number four, is find godly encouragement. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. This is a big point that I think a lot of people don't incorporate in their life. And it's probably the reason that they struggle so deeply with sins that take root and they can't seem to shake. Because if you are not getting encouraged by godly people in your life, then the enemy will have a stronger foothold in your heart to keep you in a sin, right? Sin thrives in secrecy never forget that. And so if you are struggling, the first thing is you have to submit to the Lord. You have to repent. You need to read your Bible, draw near in prayer and study. But on par with all of those things in terms of importance is finding a godly group of people who will encourage you and keep you accountable and uplift you and speak life into you so that you are not further hardened 
from sin's deception, right? And the final thing, I know I said point four was the final thing, but the final thing, point five, is to trust the Lord to renew your heart in the way that only he can, right? It is very easy to despair. It is easy to hear about the idea of a seared conscience and to panic. I remember that feeling. When I learned about seared consciences, I was definitely in a state of seared conscience. I was quick in that moment to panic and think to myself, that's the reason why none of this is registering. None of the behaviors that I'm participating in are registering as negative. And it was because my conscience was seared. But don't panic. Do not despair. That is not what we need to do. We need to trust God. And we need to believe the magnificent truth that he loves us enough to purify us, make us new, and create for us clean consciences that are functioning properly, that are sensitive to the Spirit, and help us, not hinder us, but help us in our daily walk with the Lord. God is in the business of healing things, right? He always has been, he always will be, and he will forever have the capacity to bring healing to anything that he puts his hands on. And so my friends, trust him, believe in his word today, and until next time, remain faithful. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would be grateful if you subscribe to the show so that you can be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to connect with us, you can find our Instagram page at Remain Faithful Podcast, or you can head over to our website at remainfaithful.org.